This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. Women's History Month celebrates the vital role played by women in our lives and the women who tell their stories. Today, we're celebrating a woman who not only tells women's stories, she listens to them, and in doing so, advances women into the C-suite and their organizations into the future. Jenna Fisher is Managing Director and Head of the CFO Practice at the global, global firm Russell Reynolds Associates, having completed more than 400 CFO and board searches over the last 20 years. She's also a leadership advisor, working mom, Wharton alumna, and author of the new book, To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. Jenna spoke with over 20 top female executives at companies like Nike, Ulta Beauty, Walmart, and Atlantic Records to understand the obstacles that are still holding women back and the tactics they've been using to overcome them. She joins me today to discuss her learnings on how we can energize and accelerate the potential of women leaders everywhere. So Jenna, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you for having me, Laura. It's great to see see you and be here again. Oh, I am just thrilled. So aside from you know how much I always enjoy talking with you and the the depths of your insight and wisdom from all the work that you've done, you're now a newly minted author. Congratulations. Thank you so much. So I have to ask, there's 10 million things you're capable of doing, probably <laughs> 9,999,000 that you actually do. What made you decide to write the book now? Yeah, well... I've always had a passion for keeping women on a path to success. When I was in college, I wrote my honors thesis on the differential in performance between boys and girls in math and science. And I learned in conducting that research that the only statistically significant discrepancy between boys and girls starting at age nine was around their levels of self-confidence, not their levels of achievement. Fast forward a decade to when I started working at Russell Reynolds as an executive recruiter and leadership advisor, and I would hear all the time from women, I'm the only one, only one, only one. And so I started convening groups of women board members and CFOs, the two groups of folks that I recruit here, that following grew over time. And then simultaneously with all of that, I also had the experience countless times where I would be introduced to an incredible woman who had stellar academic credentials, had worked in a super hot company, had led an IPO, the list goes on and on. But then she dropped out of the workforce after the birth of her second or third child. And then she wanted to get back in for whatever reason. And it was nearly impossible for her to rejoin the ranks of the working in a financially meaningful way. And I have felt for many years now that this was just so unfortunate and there needs to be a better way of keeping women on a path to professional success so that women can ultimately be financially on par with men. Because I truly believe in my core that without economic parity, there really is no true equality. But why now? COVID. All of a sudden, (laughs) in March, (laughs) the 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 disruptor that upended so many things, but it also upended my commute starting in March of 2020. And I had sketched out this book a few years before that, but truly never had time. But I made time for it um, in lieu of driving to and from work every day. And so last year, I started interviewing about 50 amazing, incredible, diverse women all around the globe. And I completed the manuscript at the end of October, and it just came out just yesterday. So that's why now. It's also exciting. And while other people were learning how to make sourdough bread, you wrote a book. So <laughs> I'm not a cook. You... I don't do that. I don't cook. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So it's good to know there's something you don't get done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to, there's a lot in that that I want to explore with you. So one of them was this pattern that you saw of women who had dropped out after their second or third child and who we know struggled with reentry. But I want to go to that moment of dropping out of the workforce. Um, in research I had done, Actually, years ago, I saw the same pattern. 
And it really troubled me why they were dropping out. Did you see a pattern in why? Because I imagine the women that you were talking to are consummately educated, really experienced, enormously talented, and at their core, ambitious. Why were these women leaving the workforce? So there are myriad reasons, but you know, one thing I learned in writing my book um, is that for heterosexual couples, the woman is on average two and a half years younger than her husband. So it might stand to reason that when this couple, let's say they decide to have children, the couple looks at their income at that point in time, and there's a good chance that the man is making you know, significantly more perhaps than the woman at that point in time, because he could have twice the work experience that his his partner has. Oh, right, because they're still relatively young. Yes. Not to mention he may be getting paid more just because of the wage gap. <laughs> well, that could happen too. Yes, but even, even presuming that they are paid the same at the same age, he's older, so he's probably right. making more money. However, obviously that speaks nothing to potentiality. And so I think, you know, one thing is we writ large as organizations, society, but also, you know, smaller, you know, sort of in our family units need to think of careers in long range terms to support women before their careers get get snuffed out too soon. Um, I also think, though, you fast forward this and I also learned that the United States is the only major developed country that does not have a federal family leave policy. And I think that our lack of having not yet normalized extended paternity leave in this country creates a schism at the point in time when if couples decide to have children, one person ends up you know, assuming again, it's a heterosexual couple, the woman ostensibly gets maternity leave. The man may be lucky, quote unquote, and get a few days off. Um, you know, some companies are obviously more progressive now, but the, the vast majority of companies are still not um, creating a culture within their organization where men feel no friction about taking that time at home with their families. And so therefore there's this indirect message that gets sent that home and hearth is kind of up to women to manage. And I think that is uh, very problematic. <laughs> Indeed. I love the way that you put that, that men feel no friction because it's, even though there are leave policies and create more and more of them, they're still using that term, a great deal of friction that men will experience if they actually take the leave. Yeah. And that, that doesn't do our families or men any favors either because men are missing out. And I, I think just as women have been circumscribed, to certain roles and have been limited. Men too have been limited by these gendered roles that we have created in our society. And I'm hopeful that we can start to change all of that. So when I started doing my research, this is now probably 11, 12 years ago. Um, one of the patterns that I saw with the women who were dropping out of the workforce after the second or third child was also because it had just gotten too hard. Yeah. That the bias that they were experiencing at work the lack of promotion, the lack of opportunity for PL responsibility was just becoming too intense. And then re-entering was even harder. So they wound up either switching fields entirely or staying out of the workforce. Um, to what degree, you note in the book, and we've talked about it on the show, that this has always been an issue, but um, it's become a really intense issue with the pandemic and particular for C-suite women, women who had yeah. already made it into the leadership ranks. Why were they leaving? And I'm not, I'm guessing they didn't leave the workforce. They left for greener pastures. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot to unpack in that question. But, you know, one of the things that I learned by interviewing the dozens of amazing and accomplished women I did for my book is that what we have all heretofore viewed as the successful, I'm putting that in air quotes, successful <laughs> career arc, right. can't see that if you're on the radio, um, has really been designed by men for men. Did you know that even the temperature we keep most of our offices at was predicated on the temperature that men most enjoy? 
It's and, crazy. And it's, no wonder I'm always cold. Um, it's not that men, though, I don't believe are trying to harm women. It's just that the system was not set up for us. You think about back to when, when the industrial era began and people started migrating from their homes into offices. Managers had to look and watch people to make sure work was being done. People were assembling widgets on a factory line. All of that made a lot of sense. This was at a time when women weren't even, for the most part, working outside of the home. And so everything was set up with that in mind. And we still have that system today, 100 years later. And, you know, Laura, I would say one of the reasons I also wrote my book when I did is that I saw throughout COVID, the rules had been upended. And all of a sudden, the technology and the ability to measure the outputs as opposed to the inputs. I mean, it used to be if we saw Bob coming into the office at seven in the morning and leaving at 10 at night, we'd be like, that Bob, he's crushing it. He's a killer. Who knows what Bob was doing? Bob was surfing the internet all day long. But no, all of a sudden, it was like, what is your impact? Let's look at that. And COVID forced us to do that for the first time ever. And that, in my mind, was like a game changer. I'm like, this is the biggest disruption to how we work. I've got to write a book about it. Yes. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so, you know, I think especially, though, for women who want to have children, when we think about this assiduous career ladder that everybody's expected to climb in their early to mid-30s, oh my goodness, like that's kind of a nightmare scenario for women who still have, last I checked, the biological imperative of getting pregnant, staying pregnant, dealing with the physicality of that, giving birth, breastfeeding, not to mention that unfortunately, still the amount of childcare that most couples divide up is still not equal, although I know that's changing. Um, and as a result of that, I really believe we should not be expecting every single woman in her 30s to be assiduously climbing this ladder every day. Maybe it's okay if it takes people, and I say people because I believe this ultimately will inure to the benefit of men as well, a year or two longer to get to the next promotion cycle. I'd rather have 80% of a kick-ass person on my team than have her leave and get 0% of her. And the companies, I mean, I'm out there fighting the fight for the war of talent for talent every day. And what I do as an executive recruiter, the companies that get this and actually make change around it are going to be the winners because they're going to get the best talent. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Jenna Fisher. She's the author of a new book, To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. So Jenna, you're bringing up a number of really important and related issues. When I think about, in particular, retaining women, not just in the workforce, but their momentum in the workforce um, from kind of early to mid-career through the child-rearing years. And so let me reflect back to make sure I'm seeing these because I think all they're all important. So one was that our work structures are totally designed by a male-dominated workforce of 75 years ago that um, and that even within our current structures, particularly in highly competitive knowledge work, there's a progression that people are expected to be making. That's not just, um, it, it's not just that they're expected to be climbing the ladder or, and they expect to climb the ladder, but it's also the rate at which that happens, coinciding with baby making years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I think- No flexibility. No wonder people are leaving. Exactly. It's a wonder people even have the audacity to start. <laughs> so, um, but you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll make a confession, Laura, because I'll tell you, if we were sitting down, and I know we did sit down probably three years ago, and if you had shown me back then the resume of a, let's say it's a 52-year-old, and you said to me, hey, will this person ever make it into the C-suite? And they weren't there yet. Let's say they were at the VP level. I may have just said to you, ah, you know what, if they're not there yet, maybe maybe they're never going to be. Maybe they're just a really good number two. And now I think, oh my God, what a misguided sentiment that I, and I know I'm not alone in thinking that. I There's definitely ageism all around the place. Um, but maybe there were reasons that that person wasn't running a 26.2 mile sprint every day of their careers. And maybe, just maybe, because we're all living longer, God willing, 
maybe they're going to break into the C-suite at age 55 when their kids are off in college and they're more free to travel for work. I interviewed several women in my book who didn't even work outside of the home until their 40s. And now they're in their 60s or even their 70s and they're hitting their professional stride. And so I think we need to give people a little more freedom and grace to run the race at their own pace. And I think that will inure to the benefit of families, to companies, and to our economy. So Jenna, I want to explore something that's embedded in this. And you wrote very candidly about where you encountered your own bias along the way. And um, something I've actually been talking to some of our students about is that there's um, a complex dynamic that happens that we, particularly as women or as any other underrepresented member of the workforce, encounter biases as we're trying to move through the work pipeline. But as we um, ascend in our career, we actually, we're not just fighting the system, we also become the system. Mm. We're hiring other people. Our biases start to impact other people's personal and professional lives. So first personally, and then I want to talk about this in a professional context, how did you come to the place where you could acknowledge your own biases? Yeah, and it's a great question. I I remember (laughs) earlier in my career, I was sitting in my office one day and I, I happen to love the color pink for those of you who are watching me on the radio, which all of you are, <laughs> I'm wearing a pink shirt. I have pink nails. I love the color pink. I had pink folders. Everything was pink in my office. And one day, a very well-intentioned, very nice senior colleague of mine pulled me aside and he said, you know what? I, I just have a word of advice for you. I don't think you should wear so much pink if you want to get ahead. And it was sort of shocking and distressing to me. And in that moment, Something about that comment really struck me viscerally as like, I'm willing to compromise, I'm willing to adapt, I'm willing to be a bit of, you know, a chameleon when I need to be, but I'm not willing to not be myself. I'm working hard. I'm one of the top decile performers in this firm. I'm doing awesome work. Please ignore the color of my sweater. Um, And so for me, it was more of an innate self-confidence in, I know who I am. And I know that not having friction between expressing that and doing my work landed great results. You know, I think people who are having to wear a mask because they feel like I need to act more like a man or I need to be something I'm not, um, that wastes a lot of energy. And for any of us who are in high performance jobs, I mean, we're almost like athletes, right? Like to do what we do every day takes like almost magic (laughs) and it takes a ton of energy. And if you're wasting your energy, trying to be something that somebody else wants you to be, and I'm not saying don't take feedback, right? Like feedback is a gift, but not everybody's going to be on your program and not everybody's going to like you fairly or unfairly. You need to find an environment where you can shine Um, And any woman who's tried to climb the ranks at work will at one time or another be given advice on how she needs to act differently. Don't show too much emotion. Don't be too vulnerable. Don't talk about your family. Don't be so nice. A little bit of lipstick would be good. You know, the rule, the (laughs) list of rules is, is absurd. I mean, there was something, one of the big four accounting firms just up until a couple of years ago had a requirement that all women needed to wear pantyhose. Oh my God. When I saw that, I thought my brain was going to explode. Right? I mean, it's insane. Right? It's insane. And so we have got to get away from fixing companies and start looking at the actions and attitudes of companies and their leadership teams. Otherwise, I mean, because I fundamentally believe the reason that women only constitute nine to 10% of CEO spots in America is not because women are not leaning in. It's not because we're not working hard enough. It's because we're trying to get to the top of a corporate ladder that was not built for us to climb. And by the way, we're wearing heels. So it's even really hard to climb a ladder wearing heels. <laughs> Especially if we follow that you know, consulting firm, that firm to be not to be names, directions right. about what women should be wearing to work. <laughs> exactly. So Jenna, in this, it, you know, we there's navigating the biases. One of the things I appreciated about the book and you, and you, um, framed it really well, even in the introduction, was that, you know, there's the things that all along we've been learning how to do personally, when we kind of, you know, that when we talk about leaning and how do we take responsibility 
for the things that we can actually affect that will help our advancement. But that doesn't change the fact that we're in a world that has all of these barriers and boundaries. And it's so interesting because you're at this intersection in the work that you do of hiring the people and helping the individuals get these roles who are then going to have a profound influence on the organization. So how are you looking at recruiting talent who can both, one, be successful, but also help to create the sea change that we're looking for? Yeah, I love that question. I I think that it used to be thought, and we see this all all day long in in the work I do here at Russell Reynolds, it used to be thought that the more traditionally male, again, air quotes, forms of leadership, being disruptive, risk-taking, heroic, galvanizing, (laughs) loud, you know, please be six foot tall, three inch, you know, whatever, like all these things were thought to be the marks of a great leader. I remember when I write about this in my book, when I first started, and again, this is 20 years ago, this would not happen today. But when I first started at Russell Reynolds, we we write these candidate reports for each of our candidates. And uh, one of the partners that I was working with said, oh, go look at go look at Bob's candidate letters. He writes the best candidate letters. And so, of course, as a dutiful young associate, I went off and I pulled all these candidate reports from the system. And literally the first one I looked at started like this. He stands six foot three inches tall with sandy blonde hair, a strapping muscular man. You know, I went on and on and I was like, oh my God, like, is this for real? Like, and this was how people used to think of great leaders. We thought of it as a man, right? Right. And what we've come to learn through our exclusive partnership here with Hogan, which is generally thought to be kind of the preeminent executive assessment tool, that it's actually, it's not those, 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 those qualities, by the way, of being risk-taking and heroic and all, those can be great. Those can be wonderful, important, effective leadership qualities. However, the best leaders are the ones, the ones that win the day are the ones that can be the antithesis of all of those things as well. They can be pragmatic. They can be reluctant. They can be vulnerable. They can be connecting and quiet. And we saw this in droves with COVID, right? When we saw a real need for our leaders to show that connectedness, that empathy, that kindness. And it just so happened women really shined as leaders in that in that time as well. And so I think it's these paradoxical personality traits that we look for today. And we've seen a significant tick up in, in the position specifications, which is the, do- the documents we co-create with our clients to say, here's what we're looking for in our next CXO these kinds of traits are much more in demand today than they were 15 years ago. Are you finding that your clients are um, bringing that openness to you or is part of your job educating your clients? I think there's real demand for it. I mean, certainly with all of the talk around DE&I over the last few years and um, racial justice, I, I think there has been a real groundswell of support and and demand for these skills. Um, I think one of the challenges that I see from my vantage point is that often we want those things and we also want somebody who checks every single box and has done everything. And, (laughs) And I know from having recruited 500 executives that there is no purple unicorn, there is no perfect candidate. And I also know that if we require somebody to have every single experience and aptitude checked off and they're already a self-actualized, perfect human being, um, we're going to get more of what we've already had, (laughs) right? We're not going to get more diversity because definitionally, if you have fewer women in these leadership roles and you're trying to increase the face of your leadership team, you need to introduce people who maybe haven't been a part of that leadership leadership team in the past. And, and so also, I think that's, yeah. You also, you wrote about this in the book very um, articulately and succinctly that um, men, the difference between when are we, who's hired based on what they've done and who's based on what we believe they can do. What are the differences there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I have seen, so many women not apply for a job because they think they don't check all of the boxes. And I mean, I had one of my most favorite candidates several years ago, I was doing a search for a technology company 
And I kept getting referred to this particular woman in the market and she sounded great. And I called her and she said, no, 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 I'm not ready for that yet. I've, I've never led investor relations. And my CEO client said, well, I don't care about that. I've got a great head of IR. I don't need my CFO to be an expert there. I can teach that to her. So I went back to her and I said, you know, this isn't a requirement. I know it's in the spec, but just ignore that. I think you were really the walking definition of what he wants. And she still declined to be interviewed. I went back to her a third time. Still, she was, you know, reluctant. So I figured out who she, she had a mentor that was somebody I also knew really well. So I called the mentor and I said, you have to compel her to interview for this job. I think she'd be perfect. Long story short, she ended up interviewing. She got the job. She did a brilliant job. She's now on two public company boards. She's has a president role at a bigger company. Um, but I think, wow, she's a rock star. And yet she didn't even want to interview for this job because she was so afraid that she wasn't ready. And that's very telling to me. And so I think it really is incumbent upon managers and leaders to encourage talented people to go for the promotion. Um, I think that's really, really important or else, you know, there may not be enough of the supply side coming forth. There's so much in that that I'm excited to unpack, which we're going to do. But first, we need to take a short break. So don't go away. When we return, I'll continue our show on how we can help more women achieve success and accelerate progress towards parity with my guest, Janet Fisher, author of the new book, To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Jenna Fisher, a C-suite recruiter, leadership advisor, working mom, and now author of the book, To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. So Jenna, thank you so much for being here. So oh, it's my pleasure. In rewriting some of the rules for success, one of the things I want to tap into, we were talking in our first half hour about how many women got burned out, the impact of COVID on everybody. And at the same time, you also talked about, in particular, high performance roles, people who are in many ways distance athletes, competitive, driven, hardworking, dare I say obsessed sometimes, but there's a real intrinsic motivation to succeed, to be excellent, to do the best you can. I think of you as one of these people, and today's not the first time I've met you. You've accomplished a lot of extraordinary things. In the book, you tell a very poignant story about um, when your daughter was three years old and had brain surgery. So first of all, how is she now? Oh, thank you for asking. She is, knock on wood, she is doing great. She's coming up on her 10-year anniversary of her diagnosis and surgery, and we'll have one final MRI. But at that point, uh, God willing, it's supposed to be uh, considered a cure. So we'll uh, have a big party for her 13th birthday. Well, my fingers are crossed. And for those Thank of you, you who can't see that Jenna's wearing pink, as she promised <laughs> in the first half hour, my <laughs> fingers are crossed. But Jenna, you talked about that time and I could relate to it, that you were putting in, regularly putting in 12-hour workdays. And this was going on while your daughter was receiving all of this intense critical care. Um, but that there was a tug, it's, if I read it right, that there was a tug of war even in you with where should your attention be at any given moment? So I'm curious about what wisdom you've pulled from that, how that experience has shaped you, but also what it means for working women, particularly in high performance roles, to have um, that kind of, those time demands on them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in many ways, I was very fortunate in that I found my passion relatively early in life. I wouldn't say I woke up when I was 18 years old with the epiphany that I wanted to be an executive recruiter. I don't think I knew <laughs> about the likes of Russell Reynolds back then. Um, but I, you know, after a few different pivot points, law school, working at Bain as a management consultant, and of course my time at the Wharton School of Business, I happened into the world of executive search and it was kind of love at first sight for me. I I just took to it like a fish to water and it really fulfilled a lot of my personal and professional ambitions and it just suited me very well. And as a result of that passion I felt for what I do, 
I could throw myself into it and dedicate myself to it. And I felt privileged when I started in that I did not have children yet. I knew I wanted children at some point, but I worked obsessively, but it was really a privilege and a joy to do what I do. And at the point at which I had my son first, I remember a moment uh, I would, I would, when I first went back to work at about an hour commute from San Francisco to my, to my home. And I would try to leave the office by five o'clock because I wanted to get back by six so that I could hold him for an hour and breastfeed and all that stuff before he went to bed at seven. And one of my first days back at work was one of those days that we all can relate to where you didn't get out of the office at five. It's hard to get out of the office at five. And I was sort of frantic. I left the office finally at six with, you know, emails undone and papers on my desk, which I am not apt to do. I'm pretty OCD about getting through all that stuff. (laughs) Um, And, but, you know, it was sort of careening into my driveway at home. And I remember, um, you know, the door being opened and my husband standing there with, with our baby um, sort of like, you know, are you going to get in here? Cause it's seven o'clock and, you know, time's a ticket. We got to put this little guy to bed and my phone rang and it was a client. And I just reflexively picked it up because that's what I did, you know, (laughs) like clients first. And of course, Harry, I'm staring at my my husband and my son thinking, if I don't get out of the car in the next 10 seconds, I'm going to miss my window of opportunity to hold my child today, which is just heartbreaking when you are a new mom. All you want to do is be with your baby. Um, and I said to my client, I was like, oh my gosh, like, can I call you back in half an hour? And of course he said, yeah, sure. You know, not a problem. Um, but it was up until that point, I think, you know, when you're trying to solve one equation, it's pretty straightforward. When you're trying to solve simultaneous equations, um, it's a little more complicated. And um, I think I felt that same push and pull when my daughter was in the hospital. As much support and as caring as everybody was, you know, I still felt very obligated and very much, you know, the burden of things fell to me. Um, And I think in those moments, you just go into sort of COO mode of like, let's get it done. What's the next step? How can I triage through this? And um, I became very, um, very efficient, <laughs> um, but it did make me reflect and, and think, okay, I don't think having it all means doing it all. And I think that's a trap that a lot of women in particular fall into because there are so many expectations that are placed upon us from such a young age that we're not even aware of in terms of being a woman, being a mother and what that means. I mean, I've had friends tell me they feel guilty true guilt if they don't make their own baby food from scratch. And I think, wow, like we've, we've got to change this mindset because that's an impossible task to do two (laughs) to three jobs, right? Like, and sleep and be healthy and happy. No wonder so many women drop out of the workforce. So, um, thank you for sharing all of that. And, and, um, you made it feel so like I, I could feel it. I've had those experiences too. Um, one of the, the, things that to me fe- seems intrinsic to the challenge is the norm of things like a 12-hour workday. Now, I have a big OCD streak myself. I can get obsessed with the things that I'm working on. And so it's me. It's not even my employer who's making me like, yeah, there's a volume of stuff, but there's there's my own drive to be working and to make certain things happen or happen a certain way. But for so many people, it is an organizational expectation that emails are, some organizations are so bad that they expect emails to be returned in 15 minutes, as if that's even physically possible, never mind 24 hours, when you may have meetings all day, a slew of work to be done. It's not a recipe for well-being for anybody. Do you see any efforts to change that at the organizational level? I do. I do. And I think, One of the things I was really heartened by in my book that I started referring to as career webs, um, I think that we are learning that in this war for talent, if we want to not just recruit, the recruitment is the sort of easy part, even though that's hard. It's the retention. dating time. It's being married. (laughs) Right. Right. But look how many marriages end in divorce. And it's the same thing. These women, this is what we're talking about here, but it's true for people of color as well get recruited into these organizations 
And then they get there and there's no psychological safety if they need to walk, not run for a few months or years in their personal career. Mm -hmm. And I was very heartened to speak to progressive, thoughtful leaders in my book who told me that their companies are allowing longer periods of time to reach milestone promotion marks. They are creating return to work programs. So timeouts should not mean the end of careers. And there are lots of companies that actively encourage people to take a leave, if whether it's to pursue something important to you, or you need to take care of elderly parents, or perhaps you're married to somebody in the military serving our country and you're moving all around the globe. And it's hard to have work continuity in those kinds of situations. And I think ultimately the companies that get this right, the companies that learn how to do this well, and don't just talk about DNI, but actually make some brave and courageous steps toward improving the situation we have. These are the companies that will win the war for talent. These mm-hmm. are the companies that will end up with higher stock prices and and uh, market capitalization. Um, and it takes some bravery. It takes some creativity, but ultimately it inures to the bottom line. And so I say, don't do it because you're feeling like you need to be charitable. Do it because you are a capitalistic carnivore (laughs) and you want the best for your company. This is what will get you there. So again, these answers are so rich. I have a lot of questions. So let's start with, you talked about the web and you wrote about this in the book as opposed to the latter. Um, And um, I think about it as um, if we zig and zag through our careers, is the, the web the thing that is holding us up as we zig and zag? But could you explain a little bit more about what the web might look like for some people? Yeah, so it could be that, you know, I think historically, a lot of us have been trained to think, okay, I'm going to do a manager level role in a particular area of functional expertise. I then progress to a director level, senior director, VP, and, and so on and so forth, all the way up. Um, and that is one way to get to the top. I'm not <laughs> disparaging that. However, there is there's more than one way to do it. You could also take somebody who is a known quantity in a company who you know is a, somebody who performs, who delivers. They have internal networks, having been at the company for several years. And you could move that person from, let's say, I'm just making this up, but from a finance role into a sales role. Wow, that's a really interesting experience, both for the company to get that cross-pollinization of ideas and to have the benefit of those networks within the organization, but also for that person as they think about getting to the top, they're doing so perhaps in a back and forth fashion that at times might feel lateral in nature and is lateral in nature. But the benefit is for somebody who's planning his or her career, they might say, you know what? I've got three kids under the age of five. I've got a partner who travels almost full-time for work, and I've got elderly parents who live nearby. For the next two to three years, my life's pretty crazy. I can't work 80-hour weeks. I might want to, but that's just not in the cards for me and keeping my sanity. But I really still want to work. Like, I love this company. I love what we do. I love our colleagues. Let's find a creative way to keep that person in the organization but in another role that stretches them and grows them, but not so, not so, so, you know, robustly that they burn out. I think that's one way of of approaching it that could yield a lot of goodness. Another, just to throw one other option out there is to develop age diversity. I think age should be part of every company's DE&I program. Beyond the diversity of perspectives that feeds innovation, I think older workers, and there's lots of research that I enumerate in my book to show this, They create a sense of psychological safety in the workplace. They bring wisdom. They bring calm Mm -hmm. (laughs) that can foster greater productivity. And there's research that I cite in my book that shows that older, more experienced workers are more likely to be loyal. They're less likely to get ruffled about politics. And they can be a a really great stabilizing force for good in in organizations. And so I think that's another way to think about people's careers longitudinally and not just think, okay, once you're 55, that's it, we're done. I mean, there's tons of neuroscience data that would support the idea that actually retiring at the age of 55 is not good for brain health. So let's let's think about how we can keep people longer. And it's so interesting that you say this, because like the idea at 55 that people retire is, um, it's, it's not just crazy, but it's also 
Um, in some ways, it's a real privilege only afforded to the knowledge workers in the upper echelons of the workplace. Yet the ageism around people in their 50s, particularly women in their 50s, is rampant. What advice do you have for women in themselves to get past the bias that so many of us experience when we try and enter new environments? Because mm -hmm. at least what I'm seeing anecdotally is that these are my peers, is that within an organization, it's easier to get traction than it is to get the attention of an outside organization. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, your comment about retirement age, it's also a complete governmental construct and relic of the baby boomers, right? We needed to get people out of the workforce to create jobs. And so at that point in time, there were more jobs than there were people. And so, I mean, we're people than there were jobs. And so we said, we got to get them out. Now it's the inverse, right? We don't have enough people to do the jobs we need. And so it's a different time. So it requires different muscles. But I think in terms of to your question, Laura, about removing biases, I think, first of all, we all need to acknowledge we have them. I tell the story in my book about, I, this just happened to me at the end of last year when I was at sort of the end of writing my book, I happened to be getting on a plane and the woman by the door greeting me, I said, you know, good morning to her, whatever, sat down in my seat. I assume she was a flight attendant. And then I see her go into the cockpit and then I hear her voice come on. And I was like, Joe, I assume she was a flight attendant because she was a woman and shame on me. Right. And like, I'm pretty progressive on this topic. And that was where my head went. I thought most pilots are men. I mean, I wasn't thinking that much about it at the time until I saw her. And then I was like, oh my God, Jenna, I can't believe you just did that. So I'm thinking, I have biases. Everybody, ha ha everybody has biases. So let's be proactive about eradicating stereotypes that, so that we don't distort the way decisions are made. We have assumptions about male expertise. We have assumptions about, you know, <laughs> gray hair. Like it's okay for men to have it, but not women. Right. They um, become distinguished. We look old. Right. Yeah. Um, and so let's at least at a baseline, let's recognize this is happening. So that's sort of step one. <laughs> Step two is let's start to remove those biases. So, you know, some ways you can do that. You can consider using blind resumes, which would include no name, photos, details about gender or race, age, dates. Um, that's a powerful way. I mean, there's that famous orchestra audition that Harvard University ran when they found that they blinded the interviews for their symphony that increased the women auditioners uh, odds by more than 50%. So this is real. Um, I think we also need to think outside the box more. We need to make some bold hiring decisions. This is not going to be easy, right? Like if we want to short circuit what otherwise is going to be 132 years to get women to parity with men, which I think is an embarrassment um, and just insane when you consider that women are graduating in higher droves than men from undergrad and graduate school and 71% of valedictorians are women. Um, but if we want to short circuit that, we're going to have to make some bold decisions. We're going to have to leverage perhaps looking at some executive assessment data to say what somebody's, what are, what are this person's leadership attributes? What's their potentiality? Um, is it really a fair criticism that somebody lacks gravitas? Or is she just not tall enough to match your expectations? We need to take a hard look at these biases and how they hold us back because they are right. holding us back. And then add to them age. Right. Especially yeah. when, you know, building on things that you've said, we've known for a long time that when women have dropped out of the workforce, it's not because, um, you know, it's one thing for the very small group of women who are affluent enough to say work is a choice. Mm -hmm. Most people need to work. Mm -hmm. Most people can't sustain. Most women are finding it hard to sustain work once they have children. The environment's so challenging. And if they drop out, they economically and personally need to get in. And we need their talent in the workplace. We do. Now, talk to me a bit about re-entry programs and what people can do to prepare for them, to find them, and how organizations are looking at them so we could navigate them successfully. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading more and more about this because as we've discussed, there is a misalignment of supply and demand, especially experienced supply in the market right now. Um, many people for various reasons have opted out over the past few years with COVID. 
Um, and companies are struggling to find qualified individuals. Um, I think that there is probably a virtuous cycle in here somewhere where you get a little see it to be it. And I'm guessing that there are going to be some companies are going to get this and Mm -hmm. that's going to help to bolster them. And I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that those companies can be both beacons of light for their own organizations, but also for others. Um, because, you know, it's not something that we're seeing ubiquitously yet. Um, but I think, um, hopefully we'll see more and more of it. Um, because to, to have all these people with so much experience and then just to let it go is, is such a loss, right? Um, yeah, I feel like I've just gotten to a point where, like you were saying, wisdom, where, you know, one of the things I love also about the women I work with my age, my women friends, is that I see this deepening wisdom, this perspective, this patience, all these attributes that are grown over time, and where actually decision making is really wise and informed. And then at the same time, um, there's this, there's this, um, I'm going to call it a trend. And I think it's a healthy thing, but I also have some concerns where increasingly menopause is not a dirty word to be uttered in secret, you know, behind closed doors. And it's fantastic that there are growing companies and products to help women be more comfortable. But at the same time, the headlines of them are all about brain fog, sleeplessness, things that make it seem like that are equating menopause with being unable to function. Now, this is real for a lot of women. I don't want to in any way diminish that, but it's not the same thing as saying you no longer are wise and you no longer are capable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think especially your sensitivity to the central casting approach to hiring. How harmful is this? How helpful is this? How can we deal with this personally? You know, there's an analogy that kind of comes to mind for me as you're talking, Laura, which is, I don't know if any of you have had this experience over the last few years with COVID, but I used to have this favorite breakfast restaurant in my little town that I live in. And um, I used to go there all the time for breakfast. I would meet clients and candidates there at seven in the morning before I kind of went about my day. And then of course they shut down for a period of time during COVID. And then when they reopened about a year ago, they reopened starting at nine because they could never find enough workers to, to get up early enough. And I, you know, I, I know all the, you know, the owner, I know all the folks who work there. And so I've talked to them many times about this. I'm like, where did we go? Where'd all the workers go? And most of them are now gig economy workers. They're driving lifts. They're, um, you know, they're, they're doing jobs that allow them to work on their own terms. They don't have to show up in an office or in this case, a restaurant at a certain preordained time and work for 10 hours nonstop, they could kind of call their own shots and they're making just as much money, maybe more. So I think the same thing's happening in our offices um, for knowledge workers in that historically, again, I go back to this antiquated way that we have constructed work. Um, Now we have the ability to have a new kind of egalitarianism in the Zoom world everybody's box is the same size. Doesn't matter if you're tall or short. Doesn't matter if you're sitting at the front of the boardroom table or at the side. It's easy enough for somebody to look around and make sure everybody's contributed to the conversation, regardless of your race, your color, your sexual orientation, your physical shape, your abilities, your gender, your size. And I'm hopeful that this new way of working will empower people um, and older workers, especially to have the ability to do jobs in their own way. I mean, if if we're gonna, instead of thinking of a career as this ladder, we climb, 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 and then we just fall off precipitously at the age of 55 or whatever it is. If instead we maybe think of it as like, you know, there are kind of these, these curves and bumps and ups and downs and flat areas and decelerations. And yes, there's still some times when you're running the 26.2 mile sprint. But if we look at it with a different topography, Maybe there's an openness to for people at various times in their life, whether that's over the age of 60 or between the ages of 35 and 40 or whatever it might be for each individual person to say, you know what, the next couple of years I need to, I'm going to approach work a little bit differently. Maybe that's going to be okay. And so that's, that it's so interesting because these are two things that um, you write about beautifully and that um, really struck me. So one to reflect back is that the the power of digital tools to create a level playing field. 
And it's so interesting because, you know, we've thought about them as the mechanism to just keep working and being productive. But it's uh, wonderful to hear you reframe it for us as a way to help us create more equal opportunity for everybody in the conversation. I had a moment sometime within the first, I don't know, four to five months of COVID when it was clear We've been doing it for a while. I had finally acknowledged I needed to turn my my computer desk around because I looked like I was in witness protection all the time. And I'm like, I'm going to be doing this for a while. So I actually should reorient my home office since I now live my life on Zoom. Um, there was a moment where I almost cried because I realized all the things I had lost by having spent the past you know 16 years since I'd had children far away, you know, an hour more or more drive away from my family every day. And I had this newfound, even though I'm still working just as much, if not more than ever, the psychological benefits of knowing that my children were just a floor beneath me. If I wanted to go run and give them a quick hug in between client calls, or they could come up and give me a quick hug as they were running out the door to school in the morning. That was so valuable to me as a working mom. And I thought about my grandmother. I thought about when she got her first washer dryer. And I remember when I was very young, my grandmother used to, she lived kind of in the country. She used to scrub her laundry by hand. I remember watching her do it and I'd help her line, you know, sort of line up her laundry on the the line outside, I guess you call it, the clothespins and everything. And once she got her first washer dryer, it was a big deal. And it was like, took up a big space in her kitchen. She never again scrubbed her laundry by hand. She never hung up her sheets to dry outside. She leveraged technology. And that's exactly what we need to be doing. And so when I hear people say, you got to get your butt back into an office, well, maybe there are good reasons for us to come together in person. Don't get me wrong. I love seeing my colleagues. I love seeing people in person. My whole business is predicated on a human touch. But there are also lots of great reasons for us to leverage technology to empower our workers. And so let's be thoughtful about how and when and why we require what we do of our workers, because just maybe we'll get more out of them if we listen to what they need and want. Jenna, what a beautiful way to wrap things up because we're out of time, even though I could talk to you all day. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to see you. And if people want to find you or your book, where can they look? Any major bookseller, independent bookstores, Amazon, Target, Walmart, um, it's for sale. And uh, thank you for your support. Of course, Jenna, thank you. And thank you everyone for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard, can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Thank you as always to my fantastic team, Kara Pogue, Teresa Kosadak, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.